Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is good to be in your house, to worship you in truth and spirit. And as we meditate upon the words that we just sang, we pray that we would have a greater understanding of that old rugged cross, of how our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ paid the price so that we might be pardoned from our sin. What a wonderful truth for us to meditate upon. The work that He accomplished on our behalf so that we might have everlasting life, so that we might have His righteousness, so that all of our sins would be put away. We thank You for such a great salvation cause us to meditate upon this salvation as we study your word this day. Cause us to see, Father, the privilege that we have of prayer. The privilege that we have to commune with the living God who created all things. The God who created us for the very purpose of worship. Come and meet with us. Send your Spirit, Father, for we know that all is vain unless your Spirit comes. For we know that He is the one that opens eyes to see. He is the one that unstop ears to hear. And we pray, Father, that we might see and might hear your Word proclaimed this day. How we long for your Spirit to work. How we long to see this church revived carry forth your truth. Do not allow us, Father, to be at ease, to be content. But Father, cause us to have a greater longing for holiness, a greater longing for an awakening, a greater longing to see those who are lost come to know Christ personally in their own lives so that they too might be new creatures, so that they might worship you as well. Father, use us, use this church to be a lighthouse in this community to proclaim the gospel. Teach us, Father, how to fast and pray. Teach us, Father, to walk in your way. Use us for your glory and honor. We pray, Father, for those that are unable to be with us. You know their reasons and needs. Pray especially for those who are ill, that your healing hand be upon their body. We pray for Zoe Wheeler as she goes to the doctor. Pray that they would be able to minister to her so that she would not be worse than she already is. Put your healing hand upon her body and restore her health. Continue to pray for my mother that you would be pleased to strengthen her eyes and her body. We pray for others, Father, that we know of. For we know that you're the great physician, that you're able to heal, to restore health. 
But we pray that if that's your will, that you would do it. If not, Father, that you would comfort as only you can and bring honor and glory to yourself in what you choose to do. How we pray, Father, that you would meet with us today and bring honor and glory to your name and that all that would be said and done this day would be glorifying to you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me again to Matthew chapter 6. We will again read verses 16 through 18. Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Surely, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to do your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. You know, this past week was Groundhog Day, February the 2nd. Pastor friend of mine, Jerry Marcellini, some of you know, posted on his Facebook, if a pastor sees his shadow, there will be six more weeks of his sermon series. I guess I saw my shadow. No, we won't have six more weeks, but today is the final session on fasting and praying. I wanted to wrap it up with more application than we have looked at in the past. We've dealt with the verse from an expository view and looked at it. We've dealt with it from the Old Testament as well as the New Testament and looked at many examples that took place in both the Old and New Testament. Now, we also have seen that Jesus criticized the religious leaders of His day in how they fasted. We have that very clear. They wanted everybody to look upon them and see that they were, quote, holy, righteous, when Jesus is more or less pointing out that they were not. And we see that also in the passage that we read this morning in the Old Testament there in Isaiah 58, which criticized their fasting. They would fast and they thought because they fasted that they were righteous. And as a result of being righteous, that God should bless them. And they were complaining because God not, had not blessed them because of their fasting. But God points out to you, them that their fasting was worthless because it was not true fasting from the heart. They were simply doing it as a formality out of tradition. And then God says, here is what the result of your fasting would be. If you truly fast, these are the things that you will be doing. Nobody has to know that you're fasting. We've looked at that. It's to be done secretly. But yet, what you do secretly will be evident in your Christian walk with Christ. And that's what the prophet Isaiah was pointing out to the Israelites. I've stated what Calvin wrote. Let me say something on fasting because many, for want of knowing its usefulness, undervalue its necessity, and some reject it altogether as purposeless. While on the other hand, where the use of it is not well understood, it easily 
degenerates into superstition. And we see that in our day. Most people no longer fast, no have, do not have an understanding of prayer and fasting. So I hope that you've learned something from the last two sermons. If you weren't here for the last two sermons, go back and listen to them. They're on our website. So it may help you understand fasting so that you're able to rightly fast in a manner that is biblical, a manner that's pleasing to God in heaven, and that you benefit spiritually in your own life, but not only you personally, but also our church will benefit as a result of that. Now, I was, as I mentioned, going to move on uh, into the Sermon on the Mount, but I decided to not do that and to look at more application. I think it's important that we do that. And uh, as I read more pertaining to this, I thought that it would be beneficial to us. We have to remember that fasting isn't a means unto itself. It is to be used to focus our mind and our body on spiritual things. So whenever you fast, it should be based on a biblical reason. As I was studying in um, Don Whitney's book on spiritual discipline, if you have that, he has a chapter, I believe it's chapter 15, that deals with fasting. And he gives some biblical reasons for fasting. I want to mention those. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one of them. But I want to mention them. They're very good, and you can find those in his book. But he says, first of all, to strengthen your prayer life. Now we looked at Ezra 8.23 in the Old Testament as we were studying fasting in the Old Testament and fasting is often used for this particular reason. To bring an urgency in our prayer life. To more or less storm heaven's throne. We see that in the life of Nehemiah as well as in the life of Ezra and Esther and the Jews and Haman and all the different ones there, they, they prayed fasting and seeking God to know what God's will was. Andrew Murray says, fasting helps to express, to deepen, and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything. To sacrifice ourselves to attain whatever we seek for the kingdom of God. And we need to get to that point. We need to get to the point to where we're willing to sacrifice anything. God, whatever you want to do in my life to bring about the work of your kingdom, then I'm willing to sacrifice. Now, we may say that with our lips, but are we really willing to do that? When we get to the point to where we're willing to, willing to do that, that's when God will work and use us. David Brainerd said, I felt the power of intercession for precious Immortal souls for the advancement of the kingdom of our dear Lord and Savior in the world. That's a result of fasting and praying. When you begin to fast and pray, then you have a deeper desire to see people converted. Second, to seek God's guidance. Judges 20, 26 speaks of that. When Israel went up against Benjamin and they were defeated. So they went back and, and they asked God, why, why were we defeated? What, what caused this? What needs to change? Cause us to submit to your will so that we might be victorious. And we need to pray for that. God, give me guidance in my life. 
Third, to express grief, 1 Samuel 31, 13. Remember when Saul and his sons were killed and they were hung on the tree and they went to remove them? They, they fasted for three days after that happened because of the grief of King Saul's death and his sons. So we fast when there's grief. Four, to seek deliverance or to seek protection. Second Chronicles 20, 3 through 4. When Jehoshaphat learned that the Moabites and the Amorites were coming against them and they had a vast army, he fell on his knees and he began to pray to God, protect us, God, deliver us from these armies that will destroy us. Fifth, to express repentance and returning to God. 1 Samuel 7, 6, after Israel had sinned and how they had handled the Lord's ark, 70 people had died. And they began to wonder, Lord, what's going on here? And he instructed them why they had died, because they had taken the ark very lightly and not dealt with it in the manner they should have. Six, fasting and praying is an expression of humbling yourself before God. First Kings 21, 27 through 29. Even though King Ahab was not a righteous king, we see in that particular passage that he tore his clothes, uh, knelt down in ashes, and, and began to fast and pray. So it's an expression of humility before God. Seven, to express concern for the work of God. Nehemiah, he was concerned about the walls of Jerusalem and he was asking God to have those walls rebuilt. So therefore he expressed his concern because he knew that it was the work of God. He knew that Jerusalem had to be restored so that the Messiah would come. Eight, to minister to the needs of others. Isaiah 58, 3 through 7. And that passage we just read, don't act like the Pharisees. It's a hard issue. Nine, to overcome temptation and dedicate yourself to God. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. We see that Jesus himself fasted and prayed because he knew the temptation that would be coming his way while he was there in the wilderness. What a wonderful example he gives for us. And then 10th, to express love and worship for God. Luke 2, 37 story of Anna there at the temple. He, she had gone to live in the temple ever since her husband had died. She had lived there possibly for over 90 years. She hungered for the Lord. She hungered for worship more than food. And that doesn't mean she never ate, but she spent most of her time in prayer, we are told. So those are 10 reasons we find in the Bible for fasting. Now, some of you remember before we actually became a church, constituted a church, we met for almost a year. We started in June meeting in Miss Lenny's house. Y'all remember that. And then we moved over to the campus on RTS. And we were praying and seeking to know God's will before we constituted this church. We wanted to make sure that we were in God's will, in the center of His will. Do you remember what we did? Well, we called for a holy fast and prayer And we prayed and fasted for God to give us clear direction. Evidently, He wanted us to be a church, or else we wouldn't be here today. 
That was almost 23 years ago, and we give him all the praise for that. But we pray that God would give us the wisdom, that God would give us the knowledge that we needed as we sought his will. Now, what do you do in a so-called holy fast? Well, first, you pray, right? Well, what do you pray for? Well, you pray for forgiveness of sin. David said, if I had regarded iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard. But certainly God has heard me and has attended to the voice of my prayer. Psalms 66, 18 through 19. So we realize that we're sinful people. We realize that we need to confess our sins. We realize that we need cleansing from our sin so that we might have communion with God. If we don't confess our sins, if we don't admit that we have sinned, if we don't come to God, then God, as David says there, will not hear us. So if we believe that God knows all things, then we believe that God knows every single sin that we've committed. Matter of fact, God knows more about our sins than we do. He knows all of our sins. We don't know that. He knows which sins we even try to hide. We even try to fool ourselves from those sins. He knows those sins that we cherish in our heart. I mean, when David had committed those sins that involved Bathsheba and her husband, he went for about nine months. We don't know exactly, but we know that the baby was born and the baby died. So for about nine months, and Nathan came and confronted him, David was just going on in life like nothing had happened. All the things that he had done, all the sins that he had committed. And then when Nathan came to him, and Nathan pointed that finger at him and said, Thou art the one, the Spirit of God slew him. The Spirit of God convicted him, and he confessed. And we have that wonderful prayer there in Psalms 51 of his confession. See, we can be just like David. We can overlook just how sinful we are. Because we think we're pretty good people. Oh, we're Christians, so, you know, I'm I'm good. Don't fall into the mindset of being an antinomian. That you can live as you please that you can live sinfully. No. The Puritans understood that. I mentioned in one of my sermons recently that prayer entitled Sin, and you can find it on Banner Truth website, but it reminds us of that fact. Listen, listen to what that prayer says. Merciful God, pardon all of my sins this day. Week, year, all the sins of my life, sins earthly, early, sins middle, sins advanced, omission, commission, peevish, angry temper, of lip, of life, of walk, of hardness, unbelief, presumptuous pride, unfaithfulness to the souls of men, of want, of bold decisions in cause of Christ. See, we've, we've committed a lot of sins. And that's just part of this prayer. I haven't read all of it. Of deficiency of outspoken zeal for glory. Of bringing dishonor upon thy name. Of deception, of injustice, untruthness in my dealings with others. Impurity in my thoughts, words and deeds. Of covetousness, which is idolatry. I'm not finished. 
of substance unduly saved, lavish squanders of sacred of glory to thee. The great giver sins in private, sins in the family, sins in study, sins in recreation, in the busy halt of men, in the study of thy word, in the neglect of it, in prayer reverently offered on cold, coldly, and withheld, in midst dispense, in yielding to Satan's wiles, in opening my heart to temptation, in being unwatchful when I know him nigh, in squinching the Holy Spirit, sins against the light and knowledge, confess conscience and restrain thy spirit against the law of eternal love, pardon all my sins, known and unknown, felt and unfelt, confessed and not confessed, remembered or forgotten, Good Lord, hear, hearing, and forgive. I mean, does that not kind of bring to our mind that we are sinners? That's a good prayer to meditate upon while you're fasting. Find it. Put it in your phone. Put it on your computer. Read it regularly so that you might be reminded of how sinful you are. But the wonderful thing about it is that if you're in Christ and you know that all of those sins are forgiven... Prayer should be our nourishment throughout fasting. But it is imperative to begin fasting with a contrived heart. As David says there in verse 15 of chapter 51, The sacrifice of God or a broken spirit, a broken and contrived heart, these, O God, you will not despise. That great Puritan Thomas Boston said, in vain will ye fast and pretend to be humbled for your sin and make confession of them if our love for sin will not turn into hatred, our likening of it into loathing and our cleaving to it into longing to be rid of it, with full purpose to resist the notion of it in our heart and the outbreaking of it in our life. And if we turn not unto God as our rightful Lord and Master and return to our duty again. What is he saying? Our prayer and fasting must be evident. There must be a turning. That's exactly what repentance means, right? You're going this direction, and you repent, and you go that direction. You're heading towards sin. You're heading away from sin. You're heading to the world. You're heading to glory. Repentance. You're turning. That's what Thomas Boston is pointing out. That must be evident in our life. Second, go to the Scriptures and meditate upon God's Word before and during fasting. Many of the passages that I've already read today in the previous sermons, those you can use in other passages that you come across in Scripture that you can meditate upon. The Psalms, of course, are excellent to use while you're fasting. The Puritans would read the Scripture passages that they that spoke on God's presence being with them. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit being with them. Hebrews 13, 
5 through 6 speaks about what? That God will never leave us or forsake us. First, 2 Corinthians 6, 16 says, I will come and dwell with my people. Isaiah 41, 10 speaks to us and says, Do not fear, I am with you always. And of course, we remember that Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, 20, the same thing. I am with you always. And then in 18, 20, he says, I am there in their midst where two or three are gathered. Well, there's more than two or three gathered here. So we're praying that God is in our midst today. And then Revelations 3.20, he says, I will come in and dine with you. So we have numerous passages in Scripture that speaks of God's desire to commune with His people. Do we believe that? Do we long for that? Do we want God to come so that we commune with Him? Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you say, I will fast when God lays it upon my heart, you will never You are too cold and indifferent to take the yoke upon you. You hear what he's saying? Do it. Don't wait till you're moved of God to fast. He says if you wait to where, quote, God moves you to fast, then it reveals that you are too cold and indifferent to take that yoke upon you. John Payton, a missionary to the new Herbides in the South Seed. He was born in Scotland, became a missionary, born in 1800s, early 1800s, and by God's grace he lived 82 years. And he experienced much godly joy in his life as a missionary, even though he faced many dangerous situations and circumstances. He rested deeply in that personal communion with Christ, meditating on God's promises in Scripture. Carter, would you hand me my water off the pew right over there? Excuse me. One of his favorite verses was Matthew 28, thank you, 20, when he says, Lo, I am with you always. I mean, he took that to heart, and we're to take that to heart. Lo, I am with you always. And he was seeking to be obedient to that, which followed, make disciples of all nations. And he did. He went and he sought to make disciples. I hope I'm not making you thirsty. I'm sorry. Listen to what he says. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my Lord and Savior... Nothing else in all the world would have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. In other words, do you hear what he's saying? If I would not have had that communion with Christ, I could not have continued in my life as a missionary. In other words, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. He became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him. As Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene, I felt his supporting power. It is the sober truth. 
and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years. So, so he's reminiscing about what happened 20 years earlier, and he's saying it's like the experience that Stephen, the prophet, apostle, had when he was being stoned to death. And remember, he looked up into heaven and he could see Christ. So he's saying he's relating this experience to that. That it that if I had my nearer and dearer glimpse on the face and smile of my Lord in those dreadful moments when muskets and, and clubs or spears had been leveled at my life, oh, the blitz of living and enduring as seeing Him who is invisible. So all of this is happening, and he says he has his experience. On this occasion, he was told to run and to hide because they were coming and they were wanting to kill him, the missionary. So he hides in the bush. The children, when I say the bush, that's the jungle, not bushes like you have at your house. And he climbs up into a tree. He says, the hours I spent there lived all before me as if it were yesterday. I heard the frequent discharge of the muck muskets and the yells of the savages. Yet I sat there among the branches as safe in the arms of Jesus. Never in all of my sorrow did my Lord draw me nearer to him and speak more calmly in my soul than when the moonlight flickered among the chestnut leaves. So evidently he was sitting in a chestnut tree. The night air played on my throbbing brow as I told all my heart to Jesus. Alone, yet not alone, if it to be glory, glorify my God. I will not grudge to spend many nights alone in such a tree to feel again my Savior's spiritual presence, to enjoy His consoling fellowship. If thus thrown back upon my own soul, alone, all alone, in the midnight, in the bush, in the very embrace of death itself, have you a friend that will not fail you then. Do you have a friend like that? A friend that will not fail you no matter what comes into your life. Now I doubt that most of us will ever face what John Patton faced. But we all face difficulties. I mean, there's not a single person in here that does not face difficulty. Now some face more difficulties than others. And when you do, what better way to experience God's presence than like He did in the arms of Jesus? I mean, if you have to climb up into a tree to experience it, climb up in a tree then. Like He did. Now, of course, He climbed up there to be safe. But what I'm saying there is do what you have to do to experience the grace of God, the communion of God. Now third, remember to keep it secret. Don't be like the Pharisees who boasted of their fasting. See, see, those who are always seeking to show off his or her spirituality really don't have it. You understand what I'm saying? 
If you're trying to show off your spirituality, then you really don't have it. John Whitney, Don Whitney, and I said chapter 15, it's chapter 9, I'm sorry, said fasting is unbiblical and even spiritual harmful when we do it to show off our spirituality or when we focus more on our own fasting than on the clear need of others. Don't boast about your fasting. Tell people you won't be eating only if necessity. Fasting should not be done when imposed for false motives. See, sweet communion with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is most often obtained in secret. In your closet, as the scripture speaks of. Now, sometimes it's in a congregation like this, but most often it's in your closet when you are communing with the living God, when you get alone with Him. If you don't ever get alone with God, don't expect to have unspeakable joy, don't expect to have victory over sin. Don't expect to be walking in the Spirit and bearing forth the fruit of the Spirit if you don't ever get along with God. You must be with God, communing with Him to have those experiences. During the Great Awakening, the date of the Great Awakening, early 1700s, 1730 through 1740, Jonathan Edwards was used of God in a powerful way to bring about the Great Awakening. His wife, Sarah, experienced a renewed work of God in her life. And and he told her, Sarah, write it down. And I'm glad he told her to write it down because we have record of it. Matter of fact, I went and and I tried editing so I could shorten it a little bit to where I could get it down to six pages front and back so I could make copies of it for anybody that wanted a copy of her testimony. But let me read one paragraph of what she says. About 11 o'clock, I accidentally went into the room where Mr. Bull, he, he was the guest preacher, was conversing with some of the people. I heard him say, Oh, that we who are children of God should be cold and lifeless in religion. And I felt such a sense of deep ingratitude manifested by the children of God and such coldness and deadness that my strength was immediately taken away. And I sunk down on the spot. In other words, it's almost as if she fainted when she heard how cold and lifeless God's people were. Those who were near me raised me up and placed me in a chair. And from the fullness of my heart, I expressed to them in a very earnest manner the deep sense I had of the wonderful grace of Christ towards me. Of the assurance that I had of having Him save me from hell. Of my happy running parallel with eternity 
of the duty of giving up all to God and of the peace and joy inspired by an entire dependence upon His mercy and His grace. So do you see what she's doing? Here, Mr. Bull is speaking to those people and when she hears about the condition of those people, she tells them about the con- her condition, what God has done in her life, how God has renewed her life so that she might see His grace and how God has given her assurance that she has been converted, that she's a child of God, and the duty that she was willing to give up all. Whatever you will give me, want me to give up, God, I'll give it up so that she might have that joy and peace inspired by that entire dependence upon His mercy and upon His grace. Such an experience comes from the Holy Spirit. And the most often way that it comes is when a child is alone with God fasting and praying. I mean, oh, that we would seek God in such a manner so that we would be renewed as she was renewed. Think about it. It's been almost 300 years since God has blessed this nation, since God has blessed the church with such a powerful awakening. Why has it been so long? See, I believe we have been living off that great awakening even up till today, and it's finally wore off. What am I saying? We need a new awakening. We need another great awakening, a powerful awakening in God's church to move God's people. But why has it not come? Because the church has failed to seek God in a biblical manner by prayer and fasting. It's not the lost world. They're not going to do it. It's the church. It's God's people who must do this so that we receive what God has for us. And if we don't do it, It's not going to happen. Fourth, we must prepare our bodies for a fast. Especially if it's going to go on more than a day or even a week. I've never fasted that long, but a lot of people have. I mean, we see that our Lord fasted for 40 days and nights. And I know people, especially in other countries... I've met Africans who have fasted for 40 days and nights. But we must be wise, especially if we have some kind of physical issue. We must not harm our bodies by fasting. I mean, most fasting can be very good for your body. You may need to consult your doctor before fasting. Also, if you know some event that is coming up, you may want to postpone your fasting. I'm not saying you have to, but you may want to. I mean, if the first Sunday is coming up, you know we're going to have a meal after our service, and so you may want to postpone your fasting on the first Sunday of the month, or a Valentine banquet coming up, or holidays are coming up when a lot of food is going to be prepared in abundance, and there's that temptation. You may want to wait for a different time. But remember that the main reason for fasting is to grow closer to the Lord being consumed with Him, not consumed with food, that can be difficult. 
I mean, our minds has to be focused on God. We don't need them to be focused on food. Fasting requires self-control. Listen to what Elizabeth Elliot says. Fasting increases our sense of humility and dependence upon the Lord. Our hunger and our physical weakness continues to remind us that we are not really strong in ourselves, but we need the Lord. I mean, that happens when you're fasting. That weakness that comes reminds you that I've got to have self-discipline. I've got to have the Lord helping me in this issue. Second, fasting allows us to give more attention to prayer. For we're not eating, so therefore we're able to spend more time in prayer. Third, fasting is a continual reminder that just as we sacrifice personal comfort to the Lord by not eating, so we must continue sacrificing ourselves to Him. Fourth, fasting is a good exercise of self-discipline. For as we refrain from eating food, which we would ordinarily desire, it also strengthens our ability to refrain from sin to which we might otherwise have been tempted to yield to. Fifth, fasting also heightens our spiritual and mental alertness and a sense of God's presence as we focus less on material things, worldly things, and our energies are focused on God. Sixth, fasting expresses earnestness and urgency in prayer. If we continue to fast, eventually we would die. Therefore, it's a symbol. Fasting says to God that we are prepared to lay down our lives, that the situation may be changed rather than continued. Let me close with these words of Andrew Murray. Prayer is reaching out And after the unseen, fasting, letting go of all that is seen and temporal, fasting helps express, deepen, confirms the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. Now only a Christian can do that. Only one that has been changed by the grace of God can do what Andrew Murray says, willing and ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. Are you seeking the kingdom of God? We've looked at that already in the Sermon on the Mount, in the very first portion that we looked for. And it's only those that are seeking the kingdom of God that are in Christ. And how do they know this Christ? They know this Christ because this Christ has changed their life and that's why they have a desire to seek the kingdom of God. And they love God and they want to do His will. So therefore, 
They do whatever it takes. They sacrifice anything, even themselves, to attain this because God gives them the power. Do you have that power? Have you been changed by the grace of God? Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we bow before you, thanking you for such a great salvation that enables us to do this which we have just spoken about. We know, Father, that fasting and praying does not earn us, merit us anything. But we know that it is a privilege. A privilege that you have given your children so that we might have a deeper, greater communion with the living God. And Father, I pray that each of us this morning that sit here have that desire. A desire to have a greater communion with you. As we think upon our many sins that we looked at just a few moments ago, we realize that we're sinners. We realize that we need forgiveness. And we realize that that forgiveness only comes in Jesus Christ, who is the one who has paid the price, who has taken sin upon himself and suffered and died so that we might be pardoned. And we thank you, Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you, Holy Spirit. And as we come to the table this morning to remember what Christ has done, may our attention be focused upon Him. May we not be distracted by anyone around us, but Father, may we come in a prayerful attitude, prayerful meditation as we take of these two ordinances and remember what Christ has done. May your Spirit energize us as we use the means of grace that you have given us to strengthen us. May it be so, Father as we meditate for these few moments and prepare our hearts to enter to this time of ordinance calls us to focus